Looking for a new career but don't want to spend four years in college? Then check out ECPI University. Through our year-round accelerated programs, you can earn a bachelor's degree in just 2.5 years, an associate's in 1.5, or earn your master's in as little as 15 months. Whether it's technology, healthcare, business, criminal justice, or the culinary arts, our hands-on programs can help you reach your professional goals. So what are you waiting for? Visit ecpi.edu to learn more. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Hi, I'm Chelsea Handler. Welcome to Life Will Be the Death of Me, a production of iHeartRadio. Okay, welcome to our podcast. This is Chelsea Joy Handler. Brandon, what's your middle name? Anthony. Brandon Anthony. Can I say your last name on this? You better not. Okay. And Alexandra Stapleton, who is my documentary director. She's a documentary filmmaker, and she happens to be the director of my latest film, which will be released on Netflix on September 13th, called Hello Privilege. It's me, Chelsea. Right? Yep. Is that the name we settled on? That is the name that we settled on. It was a long, long road to shoot this documentary. Very long. Okay, so Alexandra, let's. how would you like me to say your name? Alex? I call you Alex. Is it Alexandria? Alexandra? Drea. Drea. But I like Alex. Okay, so people don't call you Alexandra. No. They call you Alexandria? Your mom? No one calls me Alexandria. It's because it's too fucking long. It's too fucking long. And my first name is actually Kristen. Well, that's it's nice to meet you then. It's good. <laughs> Thank you for telling me that. Uh, but my middle name is Alexandria. I changed it to Alex so people would think I was a man when I first got started. Oh, wow. That's smart. Did that help you? I don't know. I don't think so. On my first film, I would go into, you know, meet the interview subject and they would say, we're waiting for Alex Stapleton. And I'm like, that's me. And they're like, no, we're waiting for Alex Stapleton, the director. And so it didn't really work because people still didn't associate me, a young woman of color, you know, with being a director. So, right. I don't I don't fucking know. Yeah. Well, it also helped. I mean, it doesn't go a long way because once they see you, then they're like, oh, you're a woman. Let's start disrespecting you. Exactly. No, that's not every situation. <laughs> we don't want to. I don't want to act like that's what it's like all day long. But it is for just a lot last of people. Year. Just last year, personally. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about some of the films that you've directed, so people who aren't familiar with you are. So the first film that I directed was called. It was about Roger Corman. I don't know why I'm spacing out. Corman's Corman's World is what it yeah. was called. It was a very long time ago. That was the first film I did. It took me five years to make. I have a crush on him. Well, I did. You I did? Guess. Is he alive? He is alive. Well, then I still do. Okay, great. Just like Robert Mueller. Yeah. There's same, a sim- same age range. Yep. Same age range, maybe. Yeah, I think Roger's a little bit older. I think Roger's older. a little, probably in his 90s now. But, but that tall kind of Tall, like- lanky, in control, mm-hmm. smarter than me. Yes. He's he, Roger's a sexy guy. I met you right after you came off of shooting something with LeBron for HBO. Yes. So I show ran a series right before coming on to this project with you uh, called Shut Up and Dribble uh, that LeBron executive produced uh, with his company Spring Hill. Uh, that was a three part series for Showtime. It was a great oh, experience. Showtime. Sorry. Showtime, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I direct a lot of branded content, um, have done other 
uh, docu-series projects. We've, I've worked with Eddie Schmidt. Yes, Eddie Schmidt is the director from my uh, Chelsea Does docu-series. And yes, he introduced us. Actually, mm-hmm. when I was starting my Netflix show, you came in. Right. We met then. So we came together. Uh, this was kind of a lengthy process because we started a project, then we kind of stopped down, and then we started again. But uh, we had to get all the right kind of... Um, parts and pieces in place, which was kind of took a lot longer than we thought it would because white people were so resilient or resistant, <clears throat> resistant to speaking <laughs> resilient. So, so they resilient. are resilient. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, resistant to speaking about the subject of white privilege, which is the subject we wanted to encapsulate was coming from my own backyard. Something that I didn't realize I was a beneficiary of until I was older. I thought I really worked hard for everything I had and it was because of all my talent. And then I realized, well, wait a second, that can't be only the only part of the equation. So we came together and uh, you came and kind of had an idea of where we should go and the issues to tackle. And you gave me lots of reading material. One of the books that I want to recommend to people is White Rage by Carol Anderson. I'm Done Talking to White People About Race is another one by a British woman. Is a great book that I read. And then Black Like Me is a great book, which is a guy that he puts shoe polish on his face and he poses as a black man in the South in the, what time period of time was that? It was 60s? Back in the, ooh, back it in was, the 19, I want to say early 60s, maybe even I think earlier, late 50s. So these were great reading tools for me to get started. Obviously, there's myriad options to read about being a person of color or about white privilege or white denial of white privilege. But anyway, you get the picture. So what did you want to accomplish with this film? And what do you think we have accomplished with this film? What were your goals? And and what's the reality? I thought we were going to end racism with this film. Yeah, it didn't happen. But um, I, I no, I really wanted to talk to white people. I mean, I think that was a really big objective, even when we first met and we were talking about um, the different ways that this documentary about white privilege could shape up. I thought that, you know, with all, with every kind of racial incident that happens in the in this country, um, you know, be it on Twitter with like the Starbucks incident in, in white w- women, especially calling the cops on people of color just because they're black or even more extreme incidences when things turn violent, you know, that when white people commit hate crimes, I feel like white people never really, the white perpetrators or the white people that are uh, responsible for that, they kind of don't ever talk to the media. Like they go in hiding, um, they get pushed, you know, like social media comes after them. The the, the media always gives a, a voice to black people who have been hurt and that's great, like we need that. But I. I feel like why do these white people kind of get to just disappear without having to really take responsibility for their actions and not only take responsibility, but a, but a real chance to see if they can learn um, and understand really like what they did. I don't know, just to, to, to be responsible for their actions and to, to maybe to try to like curb that type of activity, you know, for other white people to stop acting like that. And um we were shut down. Um, every white person that, I, that we went that we went after to try to speak to them, um, uh, to shine a light on what they what they did, and to understand like why 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 do you feel so threatened by black people? Why why what's going through your head? How how were you raised? How how why is this an issue? Um, no one really wanted to talk, so black people were really 
were very much willing to talk to us. And we got a lot of black people to participate in this show. Carol Anderson. Yeah. Who was awesome. Who was amazing. <clears throat> Tell us a little bit about your background because your mother's black. My mother is black. My father is white. So I am technically biracial, but I identify as a black woman. I grew up in the South, in Houston, Texas. My mother's also a black lesbian. So I grew up with a lesbian mom who is in the South and got to kind of see a very different way of having to to deal with the world through my mom. And with race, my black family, very working class. My white family, they're uh, very Texan, you know, a lot of Bubba's. But my family's really close. So I think that what brings them together is this struggle just, you know, every single day to put food on the table to uh, support their families, their kids, send, uh, try to send a kid to college, you know, if possible, just the regular things that most Americans want to do. And I feel like, and this is something that we talked about when we first met, I feel like the South gets a lot of like the attention when it comes to race relations, because everyone's like, oh God down south everything's so messed up and that's what people that's like the narrative of you know liberals in california especially white people and in new york coastal elites yeah they feel like they live in this kind of utopia and people in the south are you know it's like the clan is still coming and and white people are it's segregation is still alive and well and jim crow is alive and well there are problems in the south for sure but i have never lived in a more segregated environment than my time in los angeles Right, which is something that we talked about in the film because we realized that while these coastal liberal, uh, coastal liberal elites uh, or liberal coastal elites are okay with saying, you know, voicing their opinions that they want everybody to be treated equally, that every, you know, everyone's progressive, everyone wants equal rights for everybody, we still uh, self-segregate. Mm-hmm. We don't want to live next door to black people because white people live in certain areas and black people live in certain areas and Asian people live in certain areas and Korean people live in certain areas, not to be confused with Asian people, and that everybody self-segregates in this city, as, as they do in many metropolises, if that's how you say that plurally. But it metropoli, if... Uh, but the other thing, and then the opposite is true, that black people and white people in the South have no problem living together and communi- and having community get together. They just don't want black people having the votes and the voices that they have. So it's the opposite. There's two two bad things, right? Yeah, I mean, I think if we're generalizing, I mean, those are really big, big generalizations of, of, of the differences. I think that down South, Look, and I'm, I'm from one part of the South, but I, I think that the cultures do commingle more because uh, um, class is kind of like more uh, of an issue a lot of the times. It's not to say that, that you know, as a black woman growing up in the South and especially like with my, what my mother went through, that um, I mean, she, my mother was born into, you know, during Jim Crow, uh, the South was completely segregated. Integration happened when she was in high school. So I'm first-generation integration. Um, I'd say for that big leap to happen, it's actually pretty pr- progressive com- compared to Los Angeles or even New York. You know, I, I agree with you 100%. I think that people choose to self-segregate here a lot, but then they go to the ballot, you know, or they feel like, oh, I'm, I, I love Obama. I mean, that was another thing that we connected over that I think a lot of California white liberals um, I felt that there was a race problem um, when Donald Trump got elected, and that wasn't really 
news to most people of color. And that was something that we kind of talked about. You thought that, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but that... Please do. It's better than (laughs) when I speak for myself. (laughs) But you felt that we had kind of moved past race, right? With Obama being elected. Naively. I thought we moved past racism and we were moving past uh, sexism. I, I, I mean, I didn't even realize that sexism was the issue that it was before this Me Too movement. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, so anybody who wants to get therapy or anybody who's interested in therapy, it is available to you online. Anybody who is listening to this podcast is obviously interested in the subject matter. And if you don't have your own uh, therapist already, there is online counseling for you. It's called BetterHelp. It offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in all sorts of issues like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and more. Uh, You can get all of this online in a safe and private environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it's very convenient. So you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. And if you're not happy with your counselor... You can request a new one at any time. That's right. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Life Will Be the Death of Me listeners, you get a 10% off your first month with the discount code CHELSEA. So why not start today? Go. I'm going to. Okay, we'll go, Brandon. Betterhelp.com slash CHELSEA. I like a bed that's really firm. I need something a little softer than that. Rest easy. With the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed, you can both adjust your comfort with your Sleep Number setting. Can it really help me fall asleep faster? Yes, by gently warming your feet. Okay, but can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. It's our biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Brandon, what about you? You grew up in South Dakota? Yeah, I grew up in the Midwest. And Are there any black people there in South Dakota? There is a large Native American population. So for us, that was the segregation that you saw was the Native Americans who still live on reservations. But what's interesting here, Alex, talk about the race issue that sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind. So you think these issues have been resolved. But then like I told you recently, I was in San Diego with my boyfriend and someone drives down and yells fags at us. And it's like, oh, no, these things are still happening. You, you just live in such a bubble that you forget there are places outside of your area that are still facing these issues. Friends are still going through things. Okay, this is a question really quick. You are classifying people as black. What is appropriate, African-American or black? Before I continue. I think it's up to the individual. Okay. I prefer black. Okay. Because I think African-American sounds really formal. Okay. For, to me personally, but if if I met another black person, they're like, I I need to be addressed as an African. Okay, well, for like a default white person oh. who just wants to be respectful, uh, like what go. is there one that we should <laughs> go with? In your opinion, I think you're safe with either. Okay, well, so like African American friends who still say like, yeah, I'll, like I'm in L. A. and I'll go to a club and like you get a second look. Like there's and so it's not until someone says something because if you're not personally affected by it, like I haven't been called a fag since junior high, and I'm in know liberal san diego Mm -hmm. thinking like there are rainbow flags flying that's never going to happen here for me walking down the street holding a hand but it still does and it's important to have those reminders i think that these issues are not resolved like they are still happening and we need to be aware of it and san diego's not as liberal as la no but you still i mean it's it's more conservative conservative. yeah i mean well okay for me it was like you're you're being in a you're in a city city. like there are rainbow flags flying right 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 
you're there not are in... other gay couples. I'm not an anomaly. Right. In yeah, but were you flying South those Dakota. rainbow flags off of your own shoulder, or were there actually some? I was other shooting ones rainbow around? fireworks out of my butthole. Like that's, that's right. how gay it was. That's how you celebrate pride. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. So to that point, I think that there are a lot of us who kind of assume, you know, when I say us, white people, right. that oh, I've not seen racism lately. It's not happening, and it is. And that's kind of like the thing, though, right? Yeah. It's like white privilege is that you don't have to deal with it on the day, on a day-to-day basis. Or notice it. Or notice it. You're not it. looking out for racist acts exactly. because you're surrounded mostly by people who look like you. Yeah. And as a and I think that, that, I mean, it goes back to why I think it was easier for us to find black people to sit down and talk with us because, I mean, pretty much the culture black people as a culture it's a we're used to having these conversations it's not um it doesn't like it doesn't make us nervous right um but i think that we found and i and i don't i don't, I don't think it's a secret that white people kind of like the hairs stand up on their backs a little bit like the minute that we get you know people get into a racial conversation or a conversation about race because my personal opinion is that and I even, I, I mean, I would say this even for my white family, like white people tend to take things personal when we talk about race. They tend to make it like about, it, them. about them. It's like the only time that they take on this weird. But it's a classic defense mechanism. Right. Anytime you're defending yourself, you want to like lay blame, get blame off of you. Right. So which means that it doesn't mean you're guilty, but you're acting like it. Yeah. When instead you can engage somebody and say, oh, how can I be better educated on the subject matter? Right. Like, you know, when you're talking to somebody in the trans community, what would you like me to refer to you as? Right. Be be generous and, and thoughtful and considerate. And then, then you can't make a mistake because how can that be a mistake? Right. You can't ask a question and then be attacked for wanting to know the answer. That's just common courtesy. Well, that's why I was so excited. For, this is the podcast I've been most excited for. Because and so when you say like oh white people don't want to talk to us I go god that's so interesting because like I was so excited like I wrote questions down this morning like I couldn't stop thinking about okay so Alex is coming in like how can I grow as a person like how can I be better and I think sometimes people take that on as like they just want to cause but seeing the documentary be produced and still realizing like no there are always ways to grow and of course with like the political climate and in the media you see so much more of what the issues really are and like one of them that I want to talk about later is. Halle Bailey being cast as the Little Mermaid, Disney, right? Who is an African American, you know, young girl, and people are up in arms about it. And so I just haven't been able to stop thinking about it. So today, before I came in, I'm like, this is like I'm so lucky to be able to go and like talk about this and ask the questions because that's the only way to get better. So it's sad that like someone else who is Caucasian, white, would not want to take that opportunity. Well, that, and I think I think the the really big thing, and I hope that this documentary, because I, I feel like it's. It's not like there's a you have to be white or black or Latino or whatever to watch it. But I think that it's because we're kind of using your story, Chelsea, as like your story of white privilege. I feel like it might resonate with white audiences. The soundtrack lot. should have been as I walk through life as a whitey, no problemos. And nothing happened or everything happened. But I feel like white people... I mean, it's not a feeling. It's factual. White people need to talk to white people more, you know? It's like men who don't talk about their emotions. Yeah. It's, it's that. It's that being stuck and not but a being woman able can't to deal. necessarily get that man to talk about his emotions right. because there's so much stuff attached to that. And I feel, 
it's a fact that I, that a lot of white people don't necessarily hear the same message from a black person or you know a person of color communicating, hey, I was offended because you did this, this, and this, and this. Whereas if a white person enters the equation and talks to another white person, it's like they can have this off the record conversation, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. about how to be a better ally. Yeah. So I think it's a similar thing. I think people, you know, white people are stuck with their lack of, I mean, not all white people. I think there's obviously many that are trying to do a better job. But I, I do think that it is similar to men being stuck emotionally. You know, it's like that hump you don't want to get over. And when you do get over it, you're like, oh, okay, I'm so much more educated now. Mm-hmm. You know, now I get it. So tell me about, okay, because you forced me to reunite with um, my ex-boyfriend from high school. I forced you to? Basically, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how would you frame that? I didn't want to meet him again. I you, you know, you didn't. You, I well, was, you were very, you, it's not that you didn't. I would say you, were, I, I was, you were nervous. Yes, and I didn't know if he was, go, you know, how he was going to look at me. I mean, he had spent 14 years incarcerated, which... I had no idea because you told me I he think had I'm, been out for 14 years. Yes, so we, we that. flipped that information. We did. So that was a shocker. But I did go and see him. And this was a guy who I dated in high school. He was a drug dealer. His name was Tyshawn. We got arrested a couple times for pot. Well, he got arrested. I was let go every time. I got pregnant a couple times, had two abortions. And then I moved out, went back to my community and never saw him again. And then he ended up being put in the system for minor possession of marijuana. Well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't a He had a, number, he had a couple of strikes. Yeah, so that led to another one, and which led to him being found guilty of armed robbery. But he had had a full scholarship to UNLV, which he lost basically because of being put into that system. Where I was there for both times and was told by the police to go back to my house, wherever that was. And when I was done with Tyshawn, when I woke up and was like, okay, I'm not going to be in this world. Or, well, actually, my father dragged me out of there by my hair and was like, come back. You're not staying here anymore. I was able to go back into my life and go. I didn't graduate high school. I wasn't supposed to graduate high school in time. But because of where I was from and because of my family, they bent the rules for me. And I went to summer school and I graduated. I'd lost all credit of my junior year in high school and made it up in a summer at my own pace i went to alternative school so i could graduate in time so i was afforded the luxuries that tyshawn would never ever have been afforded and his life was pretty much it's not ruined because he's out now and he has five children and he's got a job and he's healthy and he's not using but his life went off the track whereas mine was fine and from an outside perspective largely due to the color of your skin Yep, you had the complexion for the connection. I would say that was the, yeah, that's what (laughs) Tyshawn said. said. I had the complexion (laughs) for the connection. And then Tyshawn also thought we were going to get back together and that he was coming to California to live with me. And I had to remind him that he's on parole and he can't leave the state of New Jersey. That would have been a fun surprise for me. I think that that was a really interesting point, like behind the scenes. Because when I met you, I feel like the narrative and the story, I mean, you even opened this podcast up with white privilege for you I think you kind of in your head thought that it started when you got to LA and then bam you know the white privilege meter was on mm-hmm. and you, right you started right. your you got this career then and- I became an elitist which is what I always wanted to be which is you know my goal was to have lots of money and cleaning ladies and people who worked at my house because I wanted the exact opposite experience of growing up in my parents house so that's that so that's the truth of the matter and that's where I think that's where it turned on for you and I think what the film what we were trying to accomplish was to say, no, this 
this goes way deeper than that. And the fork in the road probably started even before Taishan. It definitely did. But that was when you were still in high school. And look at the difference of how your life turned out compared to his. And it's not to... It's not to exploit Taishan. It's not to make it like, oh, he, like you said, he's in a really good place right now and his family, like they're very happy and he is not using and I think, you know, has, has kind of come out of that, but he lost a lot. And it was interesting for me to kind of try to peel back the the layers a little bit to for you to see like, oh, no, this goes way deeper than just being in California with my comedy career, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's kind of runs parallel to how I think white people think about race. Like you kind of, white people are like, oh, well, I worked really hard for this. And okay, I can kind of see what you're saying a little bit, you know, when it comes to like my job or, or you know, they, they want to kind of, they, they can accept white privilege in small doses. But white privilege is- A daily it, event. It's, it's, yeah, it's huge. It's systemic. It's, you know, it, it goes all the way down to like, to when we were babies in a hospital, you know what I mean? It's so rooted in like our everyday life. You know, we're we're judged by our the sex that we are as well as the race that we are and like where we come from. I mean, all of these things are factors in how our lives are shaped. We didn't get really deep. When our film, we weren't able to cover every topic, but I thought that it was really interesting that your story also with Taishan and what you experienced in high school also was reflective of what was happening in the state of New Jersey. And to go back to this whole false narrative that everything's okay on the the coasts and everything's fucked up in the South, New Jersey is like one of the worst states when it comes to the disparity of white and teens of color, but specifically black teens, that are incarcerated. I think the national average, and we have to, this is a fact-checking, I believe the national average is seven to one, and in New Jersey it was 30 to one. I think it's going to be a shock to people that New Jersey is actually very messed up when it comes to they have a lot of racism in New Jersey and they're and they're dealing with it on a systemic level. And there's people there fighting the good fight to do that work. But so it's no coincidence that, you know, your story actually proves the statistics you got when you encountered law enforcement. It was like, oh, this poor girl needs to go back to her people, whereas Taishan is you know thought of as. A perpetrator, you know, mm-hmm. no second chances. And that was something that Ryan, when we sat down with with Ryan in New Jersey, he, I think he really was good at explaining that for too many black and brown kids and teens, there are no second chances. You know, there are no, um, there's no, there's no room to mess up. And I think that is something that's armor that, uh, or reality that I think that I wear and that people of color wear all the time that we don't always, if I mess up on a job, it might like devastate my career, you know, and for a white male, especially, I would say even more so than a white woman, it's like, oh, you know, we're very forgiving of mistakes. And especially with teens and with young people and with kids, I think that you got a lot of opportunities to correct yourself. Yeah. I mean, there was a judge the other day that excused a boy that was accused of rape because he had good grades. <sighs> really? Mm-hmm. There was an article I read. I mean, I don't know what came of the case, but yeah, he was saying, well, he should get lesser sentence because he's doing really well in school and he had a scholarship, as if that exonerates you. What is your experience working as a female black director? I've been working. I dropped out of school. My father doesn't know that. But I dropped out of school when I was 19. Well, that's how you become a director. Congratulations. And I'm turning 40. Congratulations. So 20 years. 
and I started out from the bottom, you know, as a PA and like uh, intern actually and worked my way up. I don't think I thought about race, to be honest, in my 20s a lot because it was just so hard. I mean, I was living in New York and it was just hard to like keep the lights on. Like I, I, I just, I don't know, I was just on autopilot and I didn't really think about being a woman and I, I don't think I thought about my race often. It wasn't until like after my first film that I started to notice this weird kind of difference with all of my colleagues, like all the guys that were kind of, that we all started at the same time. And when they made their first feature, their careers started. And they were, get, you know, they were making, they were directing commercials and getting TV offers. And, and I was like, how is this magically happening? And then my film, you know, I'm not saying Corman's World is like gonna blow you away, but it got into the Cannes Film Festival, it competed at Sundance. We got bought. I mean, that's a big deal for an indie, like, back in the day. And it's a great film. I've seen it. Oh, well, thank you. And I couldn't get a job. And it was so weird because I had a lawyer, and I just remember her, like, well, you need to do this, and you need to do that. And I'm like, I need to pay my rent next month. Like, I, you know, I don't, what am I missing? Like, how is everyone else continuing to work and, 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 and to grow and excel, and I'm not? And I'm not going to say that that was 100% because I was a black woman, but I started to, my eyes were kind of open to a little bit of a different reality that I felt that I was facing. And I probably feel like it was a little bit more of just being a woman because I think that this business, I think it's different for black men than it is for black women. You know, I think that to be male in Hollywood as a director is a huge advantage and it still is. I think right now it's great to see so many black women and so many women just in general get these opportunities to direct on television shows and to get features and to get, you know, big budgeted features off the ground. But we'll see how long it lasts. Do you think it's women like Shonda Rhimes that have, like, to me, she was one of the first big mainstream. You Mm -hmm. saw her everywhere. She had hit shows, a contract with a network. Was there a turning point that you did see that you're like, it's this person or it was this event that now diversity in African-American. For black black people? I think it was Ava. I think she was David. Yeah, uh, Duvernay. I think that she because Shonda Rhimes is like doing the scripted television kind of thing and isn't and and I think that she's great and that's amazing. It just didn't really affect me. I met Ava at Sundance with Corman actually, and I was on a panel because (laughs) at Sundance that year I was a a black female director with the movie and competition, and uh, I wasn't invited to any of the black events. Because for some reason, no one thought that I was black. I, I don't know if it was because of the movie that I did or whatever. And I, I wrote to the, I think it was like the Black House at Sundance. And I wrote to them. I was like, you're doing all these events for all the black directors at Sundance. And I haven't like, can I come? And they were like, oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> They're like, we thought you were Native American. They didn't, I, didn't, I don't know what they thought I was. I don't think they thought I was a woman either. <laughs> that's where the that name. That's where it comes in. That's where that's yeah, happened it happened to me as well. On the phone. <laughs> on the phone. Um, but Ava, I did it. So anyway, they invited me to come and speak at this on this panel, and Ava was there, and that was the first time I met her. And this is before she was soup; she blew up. And Ava's magical because she doesn't just take success for her; mm-hmm. she brings everybody with her. And I and she was doing that then. Like no one knew who I was. I was this like young. I was like twenty eight years old, and I had, I was on a panel with you know a, a black audience talking about Roger Corman, and it was not hitting. And Ava <laughs> <laughs> was like. Um, Ava 
really had my back. And then she did press after that. And she kept in all of her interviews, she kept saying, there's not it's not just me, there's other directors that are right behind me. And she would put me in this, in that list, you know, of, of, of folks. And I think that's when I started to kind of the light went on for me. And I, st I still think she's doing that, you know, like right now, I'm show running a, a series for effects. And so Cheryl Dunier, who's, a, you know, an amazing black lesbian filmmaker, is the director producer on Queen Sugar. And Ava is doing it on Queen Sugar. You know, she she only brings women to the yeah. table. And I think this season it's it's predominantly women of color that she's giving uh, rise to. And then that way these women can go out and go get more jobs, you know, to keep the lights on in their house and to grow as a director and to, to get better at their craft. And I have to say, Chelsea, like, I think, I totally 100% completely mean this. I feel like you're a person that does that. I feel like you're a giant champion for women. I think for you to let me do this film and to hire me really was a very personal thing for me because I, it's you don't get those opportunities all the time. And it's not like I had done 5 million things on raise. Yeah, well, I'm glad that we found each other. I'm glad that we met and I'm glad that we had a good working relationship together. And I mean, it was a big learning experience for me. I'm only sad that, you know, you feel like you want to tackle a subject and you just scratch the surface yeah. and you really want to dig into something. Yeah. Because when I did my original docuseries for Netflix, the race one was the one that I found most compelling personally and like as a viewer. So I wanted to scratch the surface even further, which we did, but there's just so much to so do much. and so and so many places and directions to go in. It's hard to focus that attention. And the world was happening in real time. And, you know, I think that even in the in the the span of like when we were making this film, I feel like the United States of America changed so dra I mean it's still changing so drastically. Yeah, that's true. And it's hard to keep up with, I mean, when we were first doing this, I know that we spoke a lot about we did not want to include 45, you know, in the, I don't even like saying his name. I'd like to say to all of my listeners, I wanted some acknowledgement for how few times I've said his name in this podcast. I barely talk about the guy anymore. So I just want you to know that I've been touched and healed. Hallelujah. Um, Amen, sister. <laughs> and we and to it, you too, Brandon. Amen, sister. Thank you. Okay, well, this sounds like a good time to take a break. There's always a long to-do list of projects you want to make happen. Maybe you want to make a more modern color happen, or make a more fun kitchen happen, or make a cozier bedroom happen. Maybe you want to make walls that can hold up to the dog's paws, your bike's tires, and the occasional temper tantrum happen. We know you want to make under-budget happen. Whatever it is you want to make happen, Valspar is here to help. Because every drop of Valspar paint is formulated to look great, last long, and help you get the job done right. Valspar. You make it happen, we make it possible. Available at Lowe's. Human connection matters most in the most difficult times. At Vitas Healthcare, we're deploying telehealth to help hospice patients, families, and care teams stay connected during the COVID-19 pandemic. Vitas offers assessments, hospice referrals, goals of care conversation, psychosocial support, and other services via secure video calls. To make social distancing easier, we also deliver home medical equipment, supplies, and medications right to the patient's home, whether home is a traditional residence, nursing home, assisted living facility, or inpatient unit. No matter when or where your patient is ready for end-of-life care, VITAS is ready to meet their needs with complex modalities and 24-7, 365 telehealth support. We call it the VITAS Advantage. To learn more, go to vitas.com advantage. 
That's V-I-T-A-S dot com slash advantage. We don't really talk about him at all. I don't even think he's mentioned in the film. At one point, Because he he's was. not the problem. He's not the problem. He's a symptom. And I was confused exactly. in the beginning that he was the problem. He is not the problem. He was a catalyst. His election was a catalyst for an awakening, I think, with a lot of white folks. Yes. And that is a good thing. If we can get to the next level, yeah. which is like he is no different. I mean, he he's just he's a symptom. Exactly what you said. He is no different than, you know, what this country has faced over and over and over again, dating back to hundreds of years ago. And I think it's a missed opportunity to make race conversations in this day and age about 45 and not about real things, you know, real talk. Um, how do we change laws? And that was another really big thing I think that we forgot to mention was, you know, I think that the challenging part was because this is such a giant topic, where do you, how do you like hone it in? Um, and yeah, your personal story, we, we followed that. But I also think that your work, I think people were, will be surprised. Even when we were shooting, I think people were, were, I saw that for you, it felt like there was a connection between race and voting because you are so invested with getting people out to go vote. And that seemed like this kind of interesting, like intersection, you know, when talking about white privilege, because if you don't vote, if you don't have a say in an election, you can't change the systemic ways that the government and the laws are hurting you as a community. And I, you know, I know it's not like the sexiest of subjects, you know, to talk about voter suppression and all of that, but I actually think it's the foundation of um, it's, and it's educational mm-hmm. because people, some people don't believe that voter suppression is happening and people don't understand how that, how it can happen or they don't understand what gerrymandering is. All the things that I, you know, that I learned after the election, you know, so many people um, don't know about and you don't realize that there's a huge lack of education in this country about those things. So voting is the tool that you have to use. It is the only way to have your voice heard. And which is hard for people when they get turned away at voting polls or voting places and told to go somewhere else after they've, you know, I remember that story that Oprah told, remember when she was campaigning for Stacey Abrams, she was talking about that, a man who went to four different voting places and walked and walked. And she said, every time I vote, it's for that man who got turned away from four different places. And he'd walk something like, you know, eight miles. No white person will ever walk eight miles to vote. (laughs) That hasn't happened (laughs) once. Just like women don't masturbate into plants. (laughs) White people don't walk to the polls. And if they do, it's around the corner. Brandon, did you have any follow-up questions? I have a lot that I would like to well, get yeah, into. Well, yeah, go get into well, it. Because kiddo. it's, you know, Alex, is it's in media. I'm just going to take a quick shower. Um, <laughs> great. Okay, well, so back to The Little Mermaid. One of the things I want to touch on is that there's a lot of feedback right now of a cartoon character who is white with red hair being recast as an African-American girl. So obviously the aesthetic is completely different. And when I first saw the news... My initial reaction as, you know, someone with nostalgia towards Little Mermaid, my favorite Disney movie is... Okay, you, what? Okay. <laughs> All right, let me take a Keep breath. Keep your pants yeah. on. Uh, is that she just didn't match what your conceptualized idea of her should be based on the cartoon. Now, Halle Bailey looks exactly like the Little Mermaid in African-American form. She's got the lips, the nose, the big eyes. Like, she looks like a Disney princess. So I had to take a second to think that anyone can play that role. It's a fairy tale. It's a fantasy. And mermaids aren't real. But there was still that like momentary, like it should be a white girl with red hair, mm-hmm. even though I know that's wrong. Mm-hmm. 
so like what feedback, like how can we reconcile our ideals of like that certain roles should be played by certain people or that now they're saying there's a lot of like necessary diversity that like people are just being put in positions or like roles are being recast just so they're African-American or just so they're Asian or just so they're Native American. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend who said, oh, now I can't get a job because everyone's hiring, you know, minorities and women. Right. And he's like, and they're not qualified to do these jobs. I'm, they're not more qualified than I am. I'm like, yes, but you've had an advantage by being male. Right. So now it's time to give it up a little bit. And people don't want to deal with that because, again, equality feels, feels like, like a loss taken from to you. some people who've had it their whole life. And I, I feel, I mean, yeah, I mean, the statistics sh- still prove that white men are totally okay in the United States of America. Actually, in the world, uh, they're they're doing just fine. Um, I, I think that the di- that the representation for the Disney princess is kind of multi pronged because I grew up with with you know Ariel, 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 Ariel. Uh, as, areola. I, I, that's where I want to go. Yeah, but no, I know that name, that's actually it's Ariel's short for Areola. <laughs> oh my God. Um I grew up with that white princess too. And I think that that's sad that like we there's this whole of not just instead you know, of white a celebration, people, instead of saying, Yeah, yeah great, great, like, a black girl gets it. This is awesome. Yeah. People like, are like pissed. It's kind of Crazy, and if there's like Facebook groups being set up to take her down, I mean, it's nonsense. Um, well, first of all, no one should be that committed to any, any fictionalized character. character. Sounds to... like you are as committed as one can be. Well, because in my head, as that six-year-old kid watching that movie, you have an expectation, <laughs> right? But I'm not going to start. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, she first of all, she has an incredible singing voice. Like, she's going to kill it as Little Mermaid. Yeah. But there was still that momentary, like, oh, it should be a white girl with red hair. But you're, but but by you just being honest about that weird kind of shift in your head and being able to vocalize that and like life goes on and you were able to kind of like reset and go, oh, you know, right? Like yeah, I can't wait, dumb. I can't wait to see her in the role. The right. same way, my favorite version of any Disney movie is right. Cinderella with Brandy and Whitney Houston. Like I still watch it. Like I still. What about I, Will Smith as Aladdin? I didn't like that, but I didn't like the movie. Okay. Like it wasn't because of him. Like I just <laughs> I seem to have missed a lot of nothing, movies. Nothing about I don't know that movie. What the fuck you guys you guys are my, may as well be speaking North Korean. Um I think that uh I you know, I think that if you get if you if it stings for a second, get over it. You know, I mean that would be my what I my opinion about uh to people who are like, Which is actually upset. a very honest, natural reaction. It's a it's a better reaction than to, you know, it's almost a more um, organic reaction than to go, yes, that's great. You yeah. know? Be- I get more worried about yeah. the white person that shows me this article and is like, hey, I just want you to know Disney's really doing a good job. They've gotten, you know, Ariel is now black. Aren't you excited? And they're bringing that to me. I have nothing to fucking do with like the Disney. I mean, that would actually be more alarming than someone like yourself saying, you know, I saw this and I was like kind of like, weirded out by my own brain that in my subconscious mind I was kind of like oh well and that adolescent expectation again like that's what it was but again a lot of characters are being repurposed they're actively trying to incorporate diversity so what is your take on shows that are doing that like a lot of Netflix shows like every table has an Asian an African American a Native American like and a white person which I think is great how does that compare to TV shows like Blackish that it's a predominantly African American cast like do you feel like one is better for mainstream exposure than the other, like seeing an all black family versus like a black kid who's been positioned somewhere? I think you need it all. But 
the real change that I'm not seeing that I think really needs to happen is like, who, who are the executives? You know what I mean? Who are the people in the boardroom that are green lighting these shows? How right. how black, how many black executives are, are, are working at Netflix or working at Disney or working at FX or, you know, at these companies that are generating all of this content? That to me is actually fixing the system more so than like, oh, for, for a year, we've got like some, tre- we're trending right now with like our mm. African-American content. I was just reading the New York Times this weekend had a really good article about black directors from the 90s that got these one-off, you know, I mean, like I like it like that, which is one of my favorite movies in high school. Uh, it was directed by a black woman. Uh, Juice, you know, with Tupac Shakur. I mean, mm-hmm. all these great movies. Obviously, John Singleton was from that generation and he went on to have a, a very fruitful you know, career, RIP. But all of these other directors, they got one shot and then that was it. And then they were kind of like left in this, you know, very white male world to try to survive. And then when Hollywood was like, oh, these are making money, let's order 10,000 of them. It was great. But then for their second films, when they made something like the Inkwell that didn't do that well, it was like, oh, you're done, you know? And I think that that's what I'm nervous about with this, era with the Me Too movement and with, you know, um, this movement to to put more people of color in roles and even as directors, because that's great. But we really need to see a more women and, and more people of color, like working at these companies, you know, that because those are the people that make that continue to make the decisions, you know, moving forward. Well, and it's impactful behind the scenes yeah. so that there's a certain expectation then mm-hmm. where a lot of times I think you can see it in anything that's being produced. It's a white person making a decision on behalf of a minority on how right. their idea of representation should be, not right. necessarily how it would actually be. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of the companies like ne- the the big companies, Netflix, Hulu, HBO, they're doing this. I think that there is more of an effort to put out content that is specific to those audiences, but and not think- to make sure that. There are people in place to ensure that it's actually right. It's it's gonna it's it has staying power. Yeah, it's gonna stay. You know, like w- w- when we were making this, uh, the Netflix show, Dear White People. I believe that that Netflix canceled the show after two seasons. Yeah, I think. and people went like lost their minds, yeah. and then the show stayed. And that's great, right? But maybe if there were a couple more black executives at Netflix, that could have been c- communicated without this, like you know, like. Trench warfare situation on Twitter, you know, to keep the to keep that film alive. And I mean, excuse me, that that TV show alive. And I think, you know, when you're especially when you're dealing with content that that is about race, um, I think that it's important that I mean, as a director, I feel like it's actually critical that you have black executives that you can actually have like an unofficial conversation with where they understand the nuances of what's happening so that you can make a better product, right? You can speak to more people. And when you're trying, so there's a lot that gets lost in translation. And it, this New York Times article about these directors from the 90s, I think that that was something that they faced. And then, and then you know, they, they, their careers didn't have staying power. And that's really, that's, uh, that ain't cool. I'm not saying that it is a fad. I just feel like the way we keep it, keep the momentum up is to look at it like as a whole, you know, wholeheartedly but yeah there's just got to be more mix up and and mashups yeah i think that's a good point though to not leave it as is to think of it as a long it's the long game it's Mm -hmm. not like you know filling up a tank it's actually trying to figure out how you sustain this and and that should be the intention and that's i mean 
that's Hollywood. I mean, I think this business is – went for Corman's World, I actually interviewed Jack Nicholson, and he was reflecting on his time back in the 1960s and 70s, and he was the one who, like, taught me this, which was, you know, if something something is successful in Hollywood, like, people will order literally 10,000 of them. They want the same thing over and over and over again, especially if they can do it cheap or for free. <laughs> and um, – that's just the nature of the beast that the business that we all work in and that's fine but like let's put some people with let's let that beast and like the people behind the scenes look a little bit different and and be from different worlds because maybe i don't know the approach will be a little a little bit different yeah and they don't know what's going to strike what the next thing is that's going to strike right um, okay, well, this has been very enlightening. I want to thank you, Brandon, for preparing for the podcast thank with so all much, your Alex. questions. <laughs> and um, he's, you're a great interviewer, Brandon. Alex, you're a thank great you. director. And Chelsea, you're just you. Thank you're you, also guys. Great. Oh, thank you, Brandon. Okay, Alex, your turn. Um, <laughs> Bernice, thank you for being here. She's passed oh, out on the floor. And uh, we will see you next week. This has been Life Will Be the Death of Me. Effective care is built on connections. During COVID-19, Vitas Healthcare is using telehealth to strengthen the connections between hospice patients, families, and clinicians. Over a secure video call, Vitas experts can assess your patient, accept hospice referrals, conduct goals of care conversations, and provide clinical support whenever and wherever necessary. To simplify social distancing, we also deliver medical equipment, supplies, and medications right to the patient's home. Whether home is a traditional residence, nursing home, assisted living facility, or inpatient unit, your patient deserves comfort and dignity near the end of life. VITAS can help them achieve both with 24-7, 365 telehealth support. That's the VITAS Advantage. To learn more, go to vitas.com advantage. That's V-I-T-A-S advantage. Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Teams. The world has changed, and Microsoft Teams is there to help us stay connected. Teams is the safe and secure way to chat, meet, call, and collaborate. To learn more, visit Microsoft.com Teams. Life Will Be the Death of Me is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.